Hello and welcome to Breaking Mayberry, back for season four, the show that cares for our fine feathered friends, an, an <laughs> avian based show. <laughs> We're going a on show record about loving birds. <laughs> We're going on record. This is a pro bird podcast. Just coming out of the gate and making that abundantly clear. I mean, I feel like we've discussed my love of all things avian on this show. Your bird lust. Uh, my bird lust. But today, it, it's actually relevant to the episodes. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, this well, is your time to fucking shine. We're back for more of the Andy Griffith Show and also other classic baby boomer television. Did you miss us? We took a little bit longer of a break than we expected, but a lot of weird shit happened while we were gone. <laughs> yeah, things kind of got out of control. <laughs> we kept going like, would now be a good time to return? No. How about now? Mm. And then we kind of realized there's absolutely no good time to do the thing that we do. So, I mean, have you listened to podcasts with people that just like plowed through the last couple of months? Because they are all in really rough shape. I listened to a podcast for a while that was just like a couple of friends hanging out, swapping jokes. And I just like checked in on them for the first time. And it's like basically a support group now. The the McElroys don't know what to do with themselves. <laughs> yes. The McElroys, like, if you tune into them, they're like, can we do bits? Should we do be funny? And Justin's like, I'm going to do a weird voice. And the other two are like, please stop. Yeah. This is not the time. There needs to be a, like, a, a, a GoFundMe to just give the McElroy brothers a vacation. Like, give, they just need a break, and I'm so They brought so this on themselves. Yeah. They willingly chose this life. <laughs> That's right? true. They they could stop podcasting at any second, and we'd all understand. Yeah. It's a madness. It's like Wile E. Coyote chasing the Roadrunner. There will never be enough airtime for the McElroys. <laughs> God help the listener that doesn't know what My Brother, My Brother and Me is. Although you should just... If you like us, go listen to the My Brother, My Brother and Me and realize how much we're desperately trying to rip off their shit. I'm sure that it's really fun to listen to two podcasters talk about another podcast that you're not listening to. But they are kind of like the pod... Pretty much the only ones making money off of it. I really think that there should just be like a limit. We're done. Like just a moratorium on podcasts from now on. Breaking yeah. Mayberry is good. We got in. We're grandfathered in. We got in under the wire. We're at season four. That's enough to establish us, right? Yeah. But no, no new ones. No more. No. I and think. I, I think. Scarlet Witch. That shit. No more podcasts. And just right now. We're done. You're done. If done. you got one in last week, congratulations. You got it in under the wire. Be very proud. Before we launch into today's episode of the Andy Griffith Show, which I should say. The episode we're doing today is good. Yeah. And it's one that is it's probably the most famous episode. And it's the one that's the most highly regarded. Not just by, like, crazed Andy Griffith fans. This shows up in, for television critics, like TV Guide, on the list of 100 greatest television episodes of all time. And I don't know if I would put it that high, but it's certainly the best Andy Griffith episode. Well, it's like, um, the thing about it is that it is... 
archetypal. It is like a the creation of a fundamental story on TV, which we'll talk about, but it's like some hero with a thousand faces Joseph Campbell shit where it's like it is like a sort of a fundamental type of short story where kid kills bird, kid becomes parent. Yeah, I mean, a a, a thousand other episodes came from this episode. Yeah, I Uh, think that's like the cool thing that we've only had happen a couple of times and it was kind of us reaching. Yeah, this one's very clear and we'll talk about two examples of it influencing other shows. But first, I want to talk about how I almost became a movie producer. Yes, your (laughs) favorite part of the show when we just talk about weird shit that happened to us in the last two weeks. Uh I've been getting a lot of gar- – I have to be on LinkedIn a lot for work, and I've been getting a lot of garbage LinkedIn messages, more so than normal. And I got one today – or I got one the other day from a woman. I won't say her name because she has – like this is an actual person who runs an actual business but not well. And they sent me a a form letter, and I know it because it says, dear, comma. <laughs> <laughs> so I forgot my name. We're completing the raise for the new Pierce Brosnan film, November Man 2. <laughs> we have a clear chain of title. I don't know what that is. A letter of intent from Pierce. <laughs> like, like, yes! She and, like she and Pierce are on first name basis. And we only need $1.5 million to finish the funding of a $7.5 million budget. Do you or somebody you know might be interested in more details? Let me try that again. Do you... Or somebody you know might be interested in more details? <laughs> okay. If so, what's the best email to reach out to you? And then a website and let's tre- chat about 2021 business possibilities. And I wrote back, person's name, love, love, love this idea. Big fan of Pierce. Love November Man. Always wondered why it didn't get a sequel. Side note to the listeners, I've never seen November Man. I don't know what that movie is. I'm looking up November Man right now and, and I have she, thoughts. She, she, He's like a hitman or something. And I wrote, as it happens, I am currently looking for investment opportunities, but I'm thinking long term, multiple pictures. I might be interested in hearing details, but I'd be more inclined if you would kindly pass along to Pierce that I have some ideas, including a spec script for a sequel to Dante's Peak. (laughs) I think he'll love it. And I sent that message and then I stared at it for a minute or two and I thought about it and like, if I was still, like, in business for myself, I would see this through, you know, for the mm-hmm. humor. I would do another Mark Trail situation. But I just got a new job. <laughs> I just started a new job. And the last thing I need is to explain to my boss why some woman is calling his business, explaining why his new employee, like, led her on about November Man <laughs> 2, the December Man, I you, assume. Would. Yeah, if you went viral again for oh. your prolonged Pierce Brosnan Twitter antics, I feel like your boss would come in and be like, listen, we're not mad. I mean, we might be. We really can't get a handle on this. But <laughs> you're blowing up for a whole thing with Pierce Brosnan. A, a, a verified person retweeted you. It's a whole thing. Wait, I, we really don't we're in uncharted waters here. I feel like I should fire you, but I really don't know. If past antics are any indication, this would have definitely ended with Pierce Brosnan shooting a man that looks like me <laughs> in November Man 2. Yes. <laughs> would have absolutely ended in a fake character loosely based on me just dying. <laughs> 
horribly in the first five minutes. It would have been, like, it would have generated interest in November Man 2, which they would have made semi-ironically. You would have gotten, like, a three-second cameo. It would have bombed, ruined what remains of Pierce Brosnan's career, and he would be destitute now, and you would be responsible. I, again... No, Pierce Brosnan shows this life. Yes. Also, when they said that they have a letter of intent from Pierce Brosnan, I don't actually think that part is a lie. I don't think it's that hard to get a letter from Pierce Brosnan that he will make a movie. <laughs> yeah, no, of course like, not. <laughs> I feel like I could mail a letter right now and be like, Pierce, I have a great idea. It's like Into the Spider-Verse, but with James Bond. You and Sean Connery would team up and he would be like, yeah, I'm down. That sounds like a good idea. Like, he wouldn't even think about it. it it wouldn't even occur to him that Sean Connery is dead. Exactly. <laughs> like, he would just be like, movie, you, in it. He'd be like, sure, if you can make it happen, give me a call. But, okay, so many things about it. So, all right, you're going to pick a Pierce Brosnan movie to remake. You're not going to do one of the movies that he made that were, like, applauded? You're going to do November, man, the 2014, from the look of it, very generic action movie like well they were only raising a 7.5 million dollar budget my man i think it's because you can make it cheap you're not doing mama three here you know <laughs> for the love of god at least aim a little bit higher like i you were like you kind of hit it the nail on the head if you were gonna try to convince me to do a pierce brosnan sequel yeah you would do dante's peak <laughs> Although this is apparently directed by the exact same guy. That's awesome. There's a lot you could do, right? Mars reattacks. Yes! <laughs> the Matador 2, more Matadoring. <laughs> the Matador 2, seeing red. Uh, oh, that's so good. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I was trying to come up with a funny example of a different Pierce Brosnan movie, but I can't remember any other Pierce Brosnan movies. I was trying to remember the name of uh, The Matter. I was like, that one where he has a mustache. What else? After the Sunset 2? Night? <laughs> <laughs> Nighttime? It is, is it? Pierce Brosnan really is just the funniest actor. Because Pierce Brosnan is great because he looks like a guy you should take seriously, but you can't at all. Yeah, like Pierce Brosnan has made a great career out of looking like he should be a good actor. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like if you showed me Pierce Brosnan, I would be like, well, he's probably like an incredible movie star who's been in a lot of great films. He looks. He, like, he just looks like that. And then you show me, like, his thing. I'd be like, oh, well, okay, cool. He's he's James Bond. He must be, like, a prolific James Bond. He's like, no, he was in the one that went the most off the rails. He was in the one where he snowboarded on, an, on a nuclear explosion. Like, he's the guy that they gave an invisible car and had him fuck Halle Berry with diamonds. Oh, my God. They gave me... They cast Denise Richards as a scientist named what, like Dr. Juniper Christmas, just so that he could make a, a nonsensical joke about <laughs> Christmas coming once a year. You like great like thing I wish they put right after that line is you're just going like Yeah, because you know she's heard that line like eight hundred times. Like every guy that slept with her has been like, I heard Christmas only comes once a year. Yes, Chad, I know, thank you. You did a very good job. But yeah, so 
I am a huge proponent of Dante's Peak, an incredible movie, mostly for the fact that a volcano shoots a woman in the head. <laughs> Dan, you had some ideas about the Dante's Peak sequel that were the the Peakwell. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> oh, that's what it's called, Dante's Peak Two, the Peakwell. <laughs> you had some ideas. I'd like to hear them. So, to give you a brief summary of Dante's Peak. Pierce... No, you already done this. You, you, <laughs> well, done they a, need you... to know the plot of Dante's Peak before I pitch them the sequel, or it's going to be nonsense. You've already done a recap of Dante's Peak on this show before, but fine, go ahead. I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you a three act structure. All right, so first part, Pierce Brosnan is like hanging out near a volcano with his wife. A volcano shoots his wife in the head. There's really no other way to put it. There's a volcano. A, a a, a bullet goes in her head and she's dead. The next the next part, Pierce Brosnan is now a man who hunts volcanoes for a living. Uh, he goes to wherever volcanoes are misbehaving and he deals with it. So you're so he goes to a place where there might be a volcano and he seduces Linda Hamilton. Uh, that's pretty much the whole middle part of the movie. Part three, there's a volcano. Everybody dies. They almost die. He gets away. He's now the parent to Linda Hamilton's kids. Like he's their stepdad. So, all right. That's the plot of Dante's peak. So Dante's peak two, you got to do the thing that you always do in the sequel, where if they like end up with a happy love interest, you have to immediately and brutally kill the love interest in a way that oh, yeah. feels unnecessary. I'm sure that Linda Hamilton will be happy for the job. And then, <laughs> yeah, just to be immediately killed. Like it has to be like they're in, uh, they're in the suburbs. They're living a quaint, happy life. Pierce Brosnan has retired from volcano hunting, and he's become a professor of volcanology at the local university. And then suddenly, while he's, like, walking into the house to see his beautiful wife, Linda Hamilton, boom, magma rains down, but just, like, only in one part. Just, like, a ball of magma just lands on her, instantly killing her. And then he gets contacted by the CIA Department of Volcanoes to hunt down the volcano that killed his second wife. <laughs> and and then he has to go on, like, a globetrotting adventure. He Like, he goes to Brazil, and he's like, it was here. Like, the ground is still warm, but it's gone to somewhere else. And eventually, he tracks it down to Pompeii and realizes that it was the first volcano. Like, the original volcano that he ne now needs to kill to end all volcanoes. I'm on it. This, yeah. sounds, this sounds great. Let's send this, this treatment. I've got the contacts now. I'll have to unblock her. But... I, I mean, I could probably get Pierce Brosnan's email during the recording of this podcast. Yeah, here's the thing. We also have a letter of intent from Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> Just one sec. Can I find Pierce Brosnan on LinkedIn? <laughs> Pierce Brosnan. Oh, net worth. Don't even bother me about it. LinkedIn.com. Dan. Well, I mean, there's 10 on there. So either he's one of them or it's just a bunch of very frustrated white dudes. All right, let's get into this episode of The Andy Griffith oh, Show. Oh, yeah, we talk like about television on this. The episode of The Andy Griffith Show we're talking about today is season four, episode one, which I think it's a tradition at this point. Like every single season starts with like saddish Opie episode. Opie always starts this. And this is Opie the Birdman. Originally airs September 30th, 1963, written by Harvey Bullock and directed by Dick Crenna, who, no, Dick Crenna, the same dude, the guy from Rambo. 
the Colonel from Rambo. What? The first three Rambo movies. The new Bob Sweeney? We don't have a new Bob Sweeney. It kind of oh. swaps people out. But yeah, Dick Crenna, the, the guy who tells everyone that they've started a war that you can't win. Then is like the colonel of Rambo or like his kind oh, of Oh, he's the beret he's, guy. The beret he's not guy. The, the sheriff. Bu- yeah, yeah. Yeah. That guy. Yeah. Uh, okay. That's Dick Crenna. He directed a bunch of these episodes. Dick uh, Crenna is one, one of my favorite topical ointments. Good for you, man. Yeah. I don't know. You feel good about that one? No. I just had to get it out of my system. Okay. And here is the one sentence description from Wikipedia. Opie kills a mother bird with his new slingshot and decides to care for the three baby birds left behind. So let's get into this. This is, as we mentioned, one of the like most well lauded shows or episodes of the series. One of the like highest rated television shows of all time. It inspired a bunch of other shows and pretty much is the thesis statement of the Andy Griffith show, yeah. I would say. And it is good. I did enjoy this this episode. It, I wouldn't really call it that good, but I think the thing that's good about it is it definitely does – it feels important. Like it feels like sort of an important story just on the basis of – like on an archaeological basis. Like this, you can see why it's influential because it does sort of feel like it's – because – all right. Let's talk about like the basic structure of it because basically the first half is Opie kills a bird by accident. And has to deal with the concept of death. The second part is Opie raising the bird's babies and having to deal with the concept of aging and having to let go of things. So it's like it has sort of these like two mirror stories that kind of like reflect off of each other. And they're both sort of two different morals. I would argue that because it kind of tries to do them at the same time, it doesn't really do either of them well. But the other episodes we do, de- like, focus on one or the other, and I think mm-hmm. do it a lot better. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it does sort of, so, it definitely... I would agree with that. I think this is also a turning point in the in the Andy Griffith show. Maybe I can't say that because I haven't watched the rest of the season, but it definitely feels like this is a milestone. The first three seasons, the first season was a weird practice one. Yeah. The next two seasons were all Bob Sweeney being drunk off highballs <laughs> and this is like probably a a changing moment for the show itself maybe i don't know because like i haven't watched any of the further episodes i watched the next one and it's kind of silly but after that we get a fucking Ernest t bass episode so don't worry folks don't worry like i know that every time we talk about a good episode we, we all get a oh, little nervous don't worry it'll get bad again very soon so starting with the scene at the jail okay it opens up with Barney and is with Opie and they're making a slingshot out of an old inner tube from a tire or whatever. They do this whole thing about David and Goliath where Barney explains that story kind of and Opie says, well, that was thousands of years ago in ancient times. And Barney goes, uh-huh. Well, where did David get the inner tube? Where did he get the rubber for the slingshot? And the joke is Barney doesn't know, blah, blah, blah. And then they kind of stretch the joke out because then Andy explains what, like, an actual sling was as opposed to a slingshot. Barney gets, like, actually furious with him, which, like, having taken some time away from this, definitely, like, takeaway I had was, like, 
oh wow these guys hate each other yeah this <laughs> scene comes across as two people who do not like each other yeah like i forgot that we're supposed that these guys are supposed to be friends uh especially because this is like the f- closest that andy comes to telling barney hey stop it don't do that yeah and turns out like we've we've been waiting for him to do it for four years and it turns out when he does it barney just does it anyway barney's like no <laughs> it definitely has pre-divorced parent vibes where like yeah. your parents are subtly sniping at each other while teaching you how to read like it definitely has that energy but like there was they didn't have any direct interactions where where Andy didn't hurt Barney's feelings or Barney didn't glare at Andy. Like, they couldn't get through a single interaction. Because it was also, like, like pre-travel or, like, small-town America. Your best friend was just, like, the person you had the most proximity to. Like, you were going to be like, well, Frank is the person I see every single day. I hate him. And he's my enemy. I have, like, three people that could be my friends. If I don't like them, I am a I'm a hermit. So I guess, hey, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> These two seem very tired of each other in this scene, right? Yeah, and it, it's, I mean, almost like a middle finger at Bob Sweeney because Barney starts to do the thing that we all know, like. Barney's bragging about how great he is, what a good shot he is. And they cut to Andy just, like, sighing and rolling his eyes. As soon as Barney says, I was a great shot, there's just a shot of Andy at the desk going... Uh, And an incredible facial expression from Ron Howard, because he does a child that is, like, mentally checking out. He's like, oh, it's one of these. I'm going to think about neat race cars for the next 30 to 40 seconds. Like... It's it, like the, it's just this weird little flash of self-awareness. It's like half a second. There was one kind of thing that I chuckled at, which is that Barney talks about all the trick shots that he could do with his slingshot. And he would like he holds it above him and he's like, I could do around the world. And then he holds it behind his back and he says, I could do behind the barn. And I was like, because your name is Barney. Because yeah. your name's Barney and you're holding it behind you. Yeah, 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 it's dumb. Whatever. That made right, my you, brain feel good for a quarter second. Yeah, you you all know where this <laughs> is going. Barney like shoots so- something with the the slingshot. He breaks the glass in that bookshelf, which I think we've watched them repair that bookshelf six or seven times by now. Whatever. They just have uh, that one piece of glass to like rigged to explode, and they only can break that thing. Literally, all you need to know from this four minute scene is. Opie has a slingshot now. Yeah. That's it. So I'm just going to skip to the next scene. Opie's outside. He's wandering around. First, he's pretending to do the slingshot. He's going, pow. And he's like walking around the neighborhood. He He hides in a bush. He pretends to shoot a guy. At one point in time, just for a brief second, I thought he was going to walk straight into the tree just the way (laughs) they had angled the shot. It didn't happen, but I thought that would have been funny. And he shoots a tree. And then he tries another shot. And the next shot... A bird falls out. Yeah. And Ronnie Howard realizes what he's done. He's like, hey, come on, bird. Get up. Get up. And we've made fun of Ronnie Howard's acting in this before. This is good. Tour de force. Like, like, so good. Justifies his paycheck for the three seasons. There are adult actors who could not have captured this moment the way he did. Because it starts to, you can see it rise on his face what he's done. Yeah. 
And in the way that kids do, just like instant bawling without understanding, and he just runs. He just fight or flight reflex just goes in and he just runs away crying. Ron Howard's acting in this like two minute scene not only justifies the episode, but kind of the entire Andy Griffith show. I would agree with that. Yeah, this is like the moment that makes this show like a thing, I think. Because he does, it's, it's hard to explain how bad he crushes this. There's, like, layers to it. He does, like, a perfect progression. I do want to, like, say just, like, kind of, though, fuck you expecting giving, like, a small child a fucking slingshot. It shoots rocks. You gave a young boy a device that shoots rocks at a high velocity. Him killing a bird was more or less a best-case scenario. Did you never have a BB gun or a slingshot as a kid, man? I had a BB gun. My friend shot somebody in the butt with it. <laughs> like, it, they, like we, the BB gun was taken away. Like, I think every time, like, we had Nerf guns and shit, but, like, like, yeah, basically, you give a kid a fucking weapon that shoots a hard object at a high velocity, either an animal's getting hit a person is getting hit, or a fragile object is getting hit. Hmm. Let's see. I never had a BB gun. I had paintball guns. Friends had BB guns. And yeah, those BB guns were definitely used to, like, shoot squirrels and shit. Like, yeah. That is absolutely what happened. So I think you're, you're right there. There was... And then when, when I was a teenager, were anyone in your school really into airsoft guns? Yeah, there were... Do you remember was... airsoft guns? They were just BB guns, but, like, high velocity. They were just... And that was the goal, was to just go out there and shoot your friends with the airsoft gun. That's kind yeah. of, like... That was the thing, is, like, you would make plans to hang out with, like, some other boys, and then you would get word that there was going to be an airsoft gun. They'd be like, I'm good. Like, yeah. <laughs> like do you... Like, oh, that yeah, was we're... my experience, too, actually. Because it wasn't just that you were going to get shot at with an airsoft gun, because it was always like, well, we were hanging out, and then Joey brought out his airsoft gun, and then things escalated rapidly. <laughs> yeah, no, no. The kids that owned the airsoft guns, and remember, when I say airsoft guns, I'm not talking about BB guns, I'm not talking about paintball guns, I'm talking about a certain specific type of... I guess a BB gun, but not the not like the Red Rider, like shoot your eye out kid one. No, airsoft guns were basically semi-automatic weapons yeah. that shot ball bearings that like their design was to like hurt your friends. Like that was it. That was the whole purpose. And I, I had paintball guns. I went and played paintball on the weekend. But like – and paintballs hurt. Yeah. But they are also like large and visible and you usually get hit with like one, like one to three at the most. No, airsoft guns were, like, almost exclusively owned by psychopaths. Yes. Like, and with psycho- irresponsible parents. I'm just going to say it. Yeah, if it wasn't owned by a psychopath, if just, like, a normal kid got their hands on an airsoft gun, guess who was coming over to play at some point? A fucking psychopath. Like, that gun was getting in the hands of a kid with poor impulse control. Because there were, like, so many stories where it would be like, oh, yeah, how is how is hanging out with Connor? Oh, well, the airsoft gun came out, and then, things got, and then things got really dark, and, like, because it would be, like, we went through a 
dark night of the soul. Like I like emotional traumas were it opened straight up. Straight up becomes apocalypse now once that airsoft gun makes, its, but, makes like, its way into presence. Like, oh, Phil got his hands on the airsoft gun and then he started really dealing with the fact that his dad left, and then things just kind of got nuts. <laughs> it's basically like the airsoft gun came out, and then I had the conch. I had the conch, and I could talk. Yeah, like there was always a moment where it would be like and that kid's that kid's head just splattered. Just like there would always be a moment, where like all right, all right, Steve, it's your turn with the airsoft gun. All right, Steve, hand it to Nick, and Steve was like, I don't think so. I think this is an interesting development. Any time that that. Airsoft gun came out, it was always inevitably going to turn into the betrayal scene in a spy movie. It would always just be like, like the point where Pierce Brosnan is just like, okay, let's get out of here. And Sean Bean, like <laughs> kids turned into Sean Bean when the airsoft yes. gun came out. It's all, every single one of them was just like, no, yeah. <laughs> now it is my turn to shine. Bap, bap, bap. Ah! <laughs> yeah. I, I think you'll all be listening to my opinions about Toonami shows now. I think the balance <laughs> of power has changed. You um. have two choices. <laughs> Yu Yu Hakusho or the Airsoft. <laughs> I'm going to be explaining plots of episodes to you in meticulous detail. Why am I doing this? It's unclear. But again, gun. Why, did they, why were airsoft guns a thing? Why did they let us have those? Why like, did they give that to us as children? Like, do you uh, know, like, uh, Gen Xers and Baby Boomers were like, Psh, we used to play with lawn darts. We used to be in constant danger. I think we're the first generation to be like, what the fuck were you people thinking? Like, <laughs> uh, and honestly, like, again, Andy Griffith fans, right? Andy Griffith fans like to rag on kids of our gen- people of our generation because they say that we were soft and we were coddled by them, yeah. by you. Like, whose fault is that? But also, again, guns! <laughs> we just had them! Yeah. They just gave them to us! Like, Not, your Red Rider BB gun ain't shit! Yeah! <laughs> We had little tiny ball bearing M16s. <laughs> Shut up. Yeah. Let's go ahead and, and move on here. So Opie kills the bird, runs away. Later on, Barney and Andy pull up. And this is just an example of how old TV just had all the time in the world, apparently. Mm-hmm. Because Andy and Barney pull up and they have a conversation, a full on conversation that goes nowhere, where it's just like, Andy's like, hey, do you want to come in for dinner? Aunt B's making a uh, uh, special, like, Chinese food deal. And Barney goes, oh, she's making Chinese? And Andy goes, yeah, she got a, a recipe out of the newspaper. Barney says, yeah, well, that's interesting, but I better do something else. I'll talk to you later. Okay, bye. There's not a joke there. It's kind of a setup for a joke that comes later, but not really. It- that entire... You know, you know how bored you were listening to me recap? That was on television. <laughs> it's it's like they're doing a reoccurring joke, 
But it's not a joke. It's a reoccurring point of conversation. Just a thing that you talk about a couple of times. Like, you know, the thing from your life, the thing that happens to you all the time that is untevelized. It's almost like bewildering. Like, we've talked about, like, how old shows in the 60s and 70s had all the time in the fucking world to show someone going up and down the stairs or dialing a phone. You have no fucking idea how much dead air these people had to kill. Where you could just be like... Like, I I feel like after a certain point, if I, like, went obscure enough, I could just be, I could just watch a show where, like, someone just, like, just lists colors. Like, just, like, just in between, like, beats that they had read, just go, green, blue, oh, there's red, there's also red. Like, they just (laughs) had so much dead air to kill. So, later on that night, they're all around dinner, it's it's Opie, Andy, and Aunt B. That Chinese food that they just mentioned, well, it didn't get cooked anyway. And yeah. the explanation is kind of a joke, but not really. She and threw away the piece of newspaper that had the second part of the instruction. Recipe. Yeah. And I don't know. Opie's sad. He's not paying attention. Andy says, oh, hey, tell Mrs. Snyder she needs to keep her cat at home. That that cat killed one of our songbirds earlier. And this was a point of contention in our house. The first time we watched it, my girlfriend said, Andy, you're being a dick right now. And I argued, like, that, no, Andy clearly does not suspect Opie at this point. And the second time I watched it, it became very clear. Like, he has no, he yeah. doesn't think it's Opie. He doesn't think it's Opie until Aunt B said, Mrs. Snyder and her cat left a week ago. They're They're out of town. And that's when... Opie runs away, and you can watch the wheels turn in Andy's head, and suddenly, like, he has a good moment where he, like, realizes, oh. (laughs) He goes up to his room, and this is probably the best shot scene Mm -hmm. we've seen in a long time. Bob Sweeney had some good directorial moments, but this is fucking hard. Yeah. Just a hard moment, and I'm just... A very tense scene, like... So Opie's got like run upstairs. He's like distraught. He's laying down on the bed. Andy comes up and just says, "All right, spill it." And it doesn't even like let Opie say. It just goes, "You killed a bird. I told you to be careful with the slingshot, and you killed a bird." Opie says he's sorry, and Andy says, "Sorry is not a magic word that's going to bring that bird back to life." Yeah. Yeah. You think that's hard? You haven't seen shit yet. Yeah, because he's about to get a lot harder. Opie asks if he's gonna get a whipping, which Andy says no. But what he then does is he opens Opie's window and says, "Those birds are crying out for their mom. You better listen to them for a while." And then fucking leaves. And there's a lot to unpack there. One thing is, man, even in a show where they kind of make a point to never have Andy beat Opie, the fucking spec, like, the dagger of child beating is just hanging over this show the entire time. Like, it's sort of like a weird, ever-present element that, like, Andy could beat Opie, but he's choosing not to. It's not really a commentary or anything, just, like, fucking weird. Do you think, I feel like Opie was very clearly, like, emotionally devastated, and Andy is just like, I'm going to fucking drive this home. Yeah. Like, listen Uh, to the desperate cries of your victims, Opie. Seems like it (laughs) might have been a little overboard. 
he did that and literally like i said out loud fuck yeah it would be one thing if opie was like yeah pa i don't see what the big deal is it's just a bird and then andy's like well listen to these babies die the the way that they did it the way that he did it i don't have that much issue with it number one because it it was a good cinematic moment like yeah it was a like it got a response out of me the way that this show has not done in the past it's Uh, it's not something i find offensive i wouldn't fucking do it as a dad (laughs) i probably would have eased back on the throttle um but like it's fucking i don't know know. neither of us are parents i that's an interesting one but it's a good moment it's solid and like it's a lesson but then there's an entirely complete tonal shift because it closes on that. Cut to commercial. Come back next morning. Hi, Ope. What are you doing? Like, he doesn't even seem upset the next day. Yeah. And o- everything's o- fine. And Opie is gathering bugs and worms because he's going to feed it. He, now he's Opie the mother. Now he's yeah feeding the birds. Uh, winking, blinking, and nod. He has named them. And as... And, that's the gag, right? Now Opie is taking responsibility for, not the gag, but the point. Opie's now taking responsibility for these orphaned birds because it's his fault. Which um, I think is definitely the thing that feels missing from this is there's no middle. Like, they don't do a shot of Opie, like, deciding to take care of the birds. It's just, like, like there's no turn. It's just you don't a- You don't think that him listening to the birds that his dad just opened the window for serves that purpose? No, it feels like there's no middle because it goes problem, solution, which is like pretty common for this like show where it's like, well, Opie, here's the lesson you should learn from this story. And Opie's like, I learned it. I internalized it. I'm acting upon it. And he's like, okay, cool. Like there's no – like it, it's just – like yeah, there's no middle, which is – Cool, because they're two separate stories that have been, like, stapled together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because he learned that lesson. It was like, actions have consequences, death is permanent. It's kind of like like part one and part two. Yeah, and now he is learning a completely different lesson. So part two is basically, for the next couple of of scenes, it's just new ways of Opie taking care of these birds. Barney gives him a set of tweezers that he can use to feed the birds explains that his logic behind it is you're not supposed to touch food that you give an animal. He uses the example of hunters on safari. Andy makes a snide comment about that. Barney is furious. Again, like, they do not have a good relationship, at least not in this episode. Opie hears somewhere that if a human touches a bird, the bird has to die, which is a weird, morbid superstition. (laughs) Yeah. But I I do want to clear something up right here, right? As Marty Schneider, friend to all birds... There is a misconception that if you see a baby bird that whose whose parents aren't around and you pick it up, that the your scent will appear on that bird, that baby bird, and the mother will abandon it then. This is not true. This is not true. Birds do not have super powerful senses of smell, right? So your weird human stink isn't enough to make a mother bird abandon its young. Mm-hmm. What's much more likely happening, though, is that bird is not abandoned. Like, that baby bird isn't abandoned. You just don't see the mom. You just don't see the parent, and you're getting in the way. And you might actually be drawing attention to that baby bird. So, most of the time, if you see a baby bird, like, that looks like it's flailing or whatever, just chill out for a minute. Unless it's, like, bald. Unless it's, like, a hairless, completely, obviously 
like baby bird, like then you can pick it up and put it back in the nest. But most of the time, like most of the time it's chill. Just let it go. Just sit back and enjoy the miracle of nature. Go touch birds. That is the lesson <laughs> no, you should that's learn. Clearly the, it clearly is the okay. opposite of what I said. It is okay to touch birds. It is open season on bird touching. Go out and do it. <laughs> that's, that's so Find- far from what I said. <laughs> Find a nest, get in there with your little fingers, wriggle around, really experience it. You thought that you couldn't touch touch baby birds before. Newsflash, you can do it all you fucking want. Get when in the there. Par- when the park rangers haul you off, tell them Marty Schneider said <laughs> yeah, it was okay. Yeah. I'm literally a Mark Trail villain. Don't take any <laughs> advice from me when it comes to nature. Go touch some birds. I'm an enemy of nature. No, don't touch birds. I believe what I said was leave birds alone. <laughs> I missed that part. I'm not what you call an active listener. Yeah, so You're not what I'd call a good person. <laughs> I'm touching birds is awesome, and apparently it has no consequences. I don't see what the problem is here. So anyway, yeah, the next couple of scenes are basically just different ways of taking care of a bird. It's uh, very, birds. it's very cute and nice, and makes me feel warm. Like yeah. it was good. Like, yeah, it, it's pretty good. And then, but it's it's all building to something, and it's building to Opie's gonna have to let those birds go. Like he's raised them; they've gotten bigger, and they're trying to get out of there. First, they're too big for their nest. Then they're too big for the cage. And then it's like it's time. It is time. Yeah, that's, so that's kind of like the general thrust of things is they are gradually coming to terms. And they, they, there's not like a turn where this comes up where Andy is like, you have to, you know, you're going to have to release the birds. Like minute one, Andy is like, all right, these are really cute. And I'm really proud of you for taking care of these birds. You do know you're going to have to let them go eventually, right? And, and Opie's like, yeah. And then like basically everything that happens after is Andy's like, it's getting closer to the time to let the birds go. And Opie's like, yeah, I'm upset about it. And then it gets closer. And then they get to the final point And Andy's like, it's time to release the birds. And like uh, Barney pushes back and he's like, no, maybe a couple more days. And Andy's like, yeah, maybe a couple more days. And Opie's like, what about a couple more days? And they all just again being like Opie's two dads. Like, yeah. Again, like a married couple that can't get on the same page. But and it is like kind of this like nice moment where they all sort of realize one after another, like, no, it's time to release the birds. Like, it's not like there's not like a conflict in it. No one gets in an argument. It's just like they all kind of slowly come to the conclusion. Yeah, I, I liked that. Right. Because yeah. that, that is how kids learn. Right. You can re- you can repeat a point to them. You can say the point. They'll go, yeah, I get it. But it has to, like, occur to them on their own. Children and apparently 44-year-old deputies. So they have this really nice moment, which is then concluded by Opie just straight up throwing the birds. Just like, oh, goodbye. This moment where he's just like, what if I didn't do it right? What if they? I can't teach them all the right things? And what if they can't fly? Which, by the way... That's why you're not allowed to, like, raise wild birds. That's why that's that's illegal. Because, no, you, yeah, you can't teach a bird to fly. Like, that's not a thing that you can do. But, again, we're in TV world. And Opie's like, what if I didn't do all the right things? Like, what if I, what if they can't fly away? And then Opie, 
who is, remember, concerned about them not being able to fly, picks up each bird and flings it. Just, <laughs> just whoa! <laughs> just like, like that, for that, the first time, I was like, all like curled up on the couch. I was like, this is a nice moment. Then Opie hucks a bird, and I'm like, Jesus! Don't you throw that second bird. Do not throw that second bird. No! Damn it! Damn it! Don't throw the third bird. Don't, th- you little fucker! Like, it's, like, have you ever, and if you've, like, walked down the streets in a city, you see all, like, the little carcasses of birds that did not succeed at flying once pushed out of the nest. And that, like, flashed in my head of, like, oh, odds are not good that all three of the birds would be able to fly. And Opie would just throw one that would immediately, like, just faceplant and die. I know that's not going to happen because it's a TV <laughs> no, show sure, for sure. children, but like that was my immediate like visceral reaction of like he's going to throw that fucking bird and one of them is going to die. Like he throws all three birds and all three birds fly, and then they get to the climactic line where Opie looks back at the cage and says, "Wow, this cage sure seems empty." And Andy says, "Yeah, but listen, the trees seem nice and full, don't they?" Good moment. Yeah. All right, yeah, that's a sweet moment. There are three things about this, just three, like, details that I noticed in this episode that don't really go anywhere. So I'm just going to tack them all on the end here. Number one, weird, interesting detail. I don't think it means anything. It's just an odd piece of set design. In that scene where they're up in Opie's room and he's forced to listen to the birds, Opie's got a wooden gun on his nightstand. Yeah! Okay, yeah! <laughs> it's just a gun. Like, it, it's it's clearly a fake gun, but it... it not at first. I said clearly. Not in at fir- black at first and white, like, it looks like a gun. Yeah, and, and he's just got a gun, just a wooden gun hanging out there. They so just, I'm just like, I thought I was insane for thinking I saw that. Like it was no. like at the end of the season. I was at the like the last second of the scene. I was like, was that a gun? Yeah, there's a gun on his <laughs> nightstand. Again, I don't think that means anything. It does put the whole like moral of this episode kind of in a weird perspective. But like, I don't think there was any thought or meaning behind that. Point number two. The, like, shirt that Opie is wearing for the latter half of this, that shirt fucking rules. It's it's black and white, so I don't know what color it is, but I imagine it's purple, and it's got, like, this cool, funky print on it, and it is both button and zipper. I guess there's buttons on the collar and a zipper, and I'm just like, yeah, me. And I kind of realized while watching this that, like, me, a grown adult man, mostly dresses like Opie Taylor. Honestly, uh, Opie Taylor's wardrobe is pretty sick. Like yeah. I, everyone on the Andy Griffith Show dresses in like a suit or a jumpsuit or a onesie or some stupid bullshit. Opie is the really the only one wearing varied clothing. Consistently a good look. Always good look. Opie's got a tight fit. And then so the third thing I noticed is that this episode inspired, influenced not one but two later Don Knotts movies. Because there's an entire scene dedicated to Don not doing bird calls and just, like, having a bit after the bird calls. Because apparently that was just a thing that he could actually do in real life. And they found a way to shoehorn into the script. I have seen The Love God, a film in which Don Knott plays the publisher of a bird-watching magazine who then accidentally becomes a pornographer. And there is an entire subplot about him being able to do bird calls. And then... This stinger, which has nothing to do with anything, but it's a silly bit. Dan, would you like to explain the stinger? Okay, so the stinger, 
The fool is deluded into believing he that fish can speak human language. The, basically, Barney gets Opie a fish as a pet. Andy puts a radio underneath the fishbowl. And Barney, for a brief moment of childlike wonder, believes that fish can speak human language and are talking to him. And Andy, like, reveals the radio, and Barney's like, oh, I'm mad, I hate you, we have a friendship based on animosity and lack of respect. And, (laughs) uh, but, like, yeah, so, and definitely, I could see, I could see that being, like, Don Knotts walking away and be like, hey, what if the fish could talk about mundane subjects, though? (laughs) Do you think there's a movie there? Do you think, what if... Like, because he's just holding, like, the traffic report underneath the fish. And he was basically, what if fish did say shit as boring as the traffic report? Which is the origin of the incredible Mr. Limpet. God, that movie's boring. Yeah. A movie in which Don Knotts turns into a magical fish. And and does nothing. Mostly discusses finance. Like, (laughs) mostly explains pensions to you. He he get he turns into a magical fish, and his immediate thought is like, "How will this affect my life insurance plan?" <laughs> yes, he's just talking about his fucking four hundred one fish K. Like. <laughs> a movie in which a magical fish fights Nazis that is unbelievably boring for the sentence that I just said. <laughs> so yeah, this, there's not one but two Don Knotts movies originated from this episode. Yeah. All right, so should we talk about the so, examples of other shows doing this better? Yeah, so so we watched two other TV shows that had similar plot lines. One is a very obvious one, and the other one was me throwing Dan for a fucking loop. Because I'm like, <laughs> yeah, man, guess what we're going to watch? We did have the question of, did Marty know, did Marty do some sort of Googling where he found the episode of The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh that also had a similar plotline? Or has Marty just been watching The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh in his free time? Neither of those answers is correct. So, yeah, Dan, that's the punchline of that I was stepping <laughs> up. We did an episode of The Simpsons called mm-hmm. Bart the Mother, and we're also watching, we also watched season one, episode three of The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, which is called Find Her, Keep Her. And the answer is, Dan, I watched that episode of New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh as a child. Oh! As a young child. And it has stayed with me <laughs> ever since. It is, I'm fully comfortable admitting it, it is the first time I ever remember crying at, like, a piece of media or, like, a TV show or anything as a kid. So, like, it has just sat with me forever from childhood. And as soon as I watched the Andy Griffith Show episode, I was like, I'm going to show this to Dan and fuck his shit up. It <laughs> almost made me an an adult, stone-cold, sober man cry. Like, it, I got, like, to the precipice. It is a... It's actually, like... Like a really fucking good version of this story. Yeah. Is the, was the I watched the New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh as a kid. Was the New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh fucking awesome? I, I was, think it might be. I think was, it might have been. Right? Was that just a sleeper? <laughs> that like like because we've gone through all of the stuff where we've been like, yeah, Doug, yeah, Rocco's Modern Life, yeah. Was new was like New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh just like bringing fire like. And we just let it just, like, slip under the radar? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I It did have 
I like I forgot how good the theme song was. So you yeah. know, like, I, screw it. Like we'll, we'll get to the Simpsons later. Let's talk about the new Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, uh, which like I, I want to point out, all three of these television shows have the same runtime, twenty two minutes. Yes, there is so much story in this Pooh Bear episode. There is. It is like, packed so densely. There is an hour and a half of movie in this twenty two minutes, and it does not feel cramped. It's insane. So. Let's establish – so based off the thing I, I like I said before, both of the examples that we have focus on a different side of the story. So Simpsons focuses on child kills bird. This fur focuses on letting the bird go. Cause yes, because otherwise we would have to show <laughs> rabbit murdering two bird <laughs> <Yeah>. parents. <laughs> so just, just like rabbit standing over like a bird carcass be like, I thought it was a burglar. Oh, God, I've never even touched this gun. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, like, so rabbit is rabbit rescues a baby bird like there is. Like this big windstorm and this infant bird is getting blown around and Rabbit like jumps to the rescue and raises and grabs it. And Winnie the Pooh and all of them are like, we'll raise it for you. Good job, Rabbit. You're not the type to want to do this thing. And he's like, you guys would fuck this up so yeah. bad. <laughs> you, I, I don't want to raise this bird. I hate this bird. He got it in the way of all my important business, but... I cannot in good conscience let you three dipshits be responsible for a living thing, so I guess this is my job now. I, I, I want to point out, by the way, we, this is what I mean when I say how dense this is. I just went to the ultra-rumbly Winnie the Pooh wiki, and I went to the plot summary of this episode, and I copied and pasted it into a Word doc, and it is 1,500 words long. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm not reading all this shit. We so, devoted yeah. too much time to the Andy Griffith Show episode. <laughs> we can't do this Winnie the Pooh episode justice. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what do we? How do we even do this? Because there's so uh, much so, shit is, to get through. Yeah. So this is season one, episode four of the New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Originally airs February seventh, nineteen eighty-eight. Written by Mark Zaslov, Doug Hutchinson, and Larry Bernard, and directed by Carl Gors and David Block. <laughs> So and many... here is your eight-paragraph summary from Winniepedia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you want to just do the summary and then we'll talk about it? Yeah, yeah. So so basically, as you said, and so the next couple of days are Rabbit being a parent, taking care of a baby bird who, like, is a toddler, basically, at this point. He names the bird Cassie, and Cassie is crying and... You know, doesn't communicate very well because it's a baby, and there are antics that happen, right? At one point, Rabbit needs a break, so Pooh and Piglet give Cassie a bath, and then there's too many bubbles, blah, blah, blah. And then what happens, basically, is Rabbit kind of says, please don't fly again, Cassie. Don't fly away, Cassie, because I don't want anything to happen to you. And then we cut to, again, go to commercial, come back. Now it's spring. Uh, and Cassie is like a teenage bird. And there are a bunch of encounters, basically. Number one, Rabbit finds a carrot in a pot, and it's a gift for him. It's Cassie said it was the very first carrot that she planted, because he taught her to plant. It's very sweet. Then she goes out bouncing with Uncle Tigger. And 
they bounce to the top of a very tall tree and the tree uh falls over and and then there's a really dramatic moment right where yeah with, yeah like, they almost kill this bird like, okay so the tree falls over cassie doesn't know how to fly yet they're Tim- on the edge of a cliff they yes. falls off the edge of on the edge of a cliff a Winnie the Pooh cliff, so inexplicably high up, like 40 stories for some reason. Yeah, what the hell? Did, was the 40-acre wood built on a fucking canyon in, like, yeah. in, in Moab Valley in, in Utah? What the hell? Did they just, like, like Christopher terra- Robin plays here. <laughs> Did they just terraform the canyon from Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner? Like- it, looks like the, it looks like the hill that Calvin and Hobbes rolled down in, in their wagon. Yeah. But so they're hanging over this fucking death ledge, um, like, and Cassie is like, and Cassie and Tigger are hanging off of the edge. A rabbit runs up to fucking save them. Has Tigger throw Cassie up? He doesn't get her hand all the way, and she slips out and falls, like to her fucking death. And Tigger comes up and he's like. Wow, there's nothing you could have done, man. <laughs> like, no, Rabbit jumps after her. Oh, yeah. Rabbit jumps down after her, and, and Tigger has to grab onto Rabbit and stop Rabbit from throwing himself to his death after his adopted daughter. Basically yells, there's no reason for both of you to die. <laughs> Which, like, <laughs> fuck you, Tigger. What the fuck? <laughs> I am so mad at Tigger. I never liked Tigger as a kid. I was always like, this guy's, oh, this guy's a dick. He's he's irresponsible and narcissistic. And this is like, what if? Because Owl swoops in and saves Cassie. But what if he had it? Like, right. What if that had just been Tigger and Rabbit's relationship forever, where Tigger is like, what a buddy boy. I'm really sorry. I killed the only thing you've ever called a son. Like. <laughs> and and rabbit's just like get off my property like rabbit just becomes a bitter alcoholic Uh, no straight up like rabbit's just like a latter-day clint eastwood character after a certain point just like drinking and screaming at people (laughs) well tigger would obviously remain completely oblivious (laughs) <laughs> fucking i was so mad but yeah owl swoops down saves the saves cassie and it starts to basically come up owl explains flying to cassie and cassie's like i need to fucking do this i am a bird i need to fly south for the winter and like cassie goes behind rabbit's back and tries to get flying lessons from everyone she asks Pooh to push her out of a swing so that she can try flying and but they're doing it all very secretly. They do a they tie Piglet to uh or no Piglet ties a slingshot to two yeah. trees, which is pretty funny at some point. And then basically Rabbit comes up and is just like, "Hey, you are teaching my child to do something against my wishes." Yeah. <laughs> and then they accidentally so, fire Rabbit out of a slingshot off the same goddamn cliff. Which Move, is so funny. Move. <laughs> To a different place. <laughs> like, and then Cassie saves him by flying. Is that right? Am I remembering <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. They launch, they launch Rabbit out into the atmosphere. And then Cassie goes, because she can fly now, and saves him. And there's a lot of stuff going on here in, in, in like, Rabbit's psyche. There's a lot of stuff going on. Like, 
he I Rabbit kind of knows deep down that what he's doing is wrong, but he can't let his daughter go. You this know? is like the first time that he's ever allowed himself to open up emotionally to another living thing, so he's deeply attached, and he feels like if Cassie leaves, that part of him will die forever. Um, not even reading into it that much. So yeah, he- no, like this, this is not subtext. This is the text. Yeah, like, and now it's kind of been established. Like, okay, well, if Cassie can fly, she can go south. It's time for her to go south again. So I guess it's it's been like it's like winter to fall, right? This story takes place over the course of a year. Yeah, and and then Rabbit kind of acts like a jerk here, but like. In kind a, of like abusive parent vibes. Just like disappointing. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go as not far like as that, to say Rabbit like is an abusive parent. But like, like no, but this is like manipulative. The first, he's definitely manipulative. If you put this scene in like the first part of a movie, it would be like the beginning of like a Hitchcockian family drama about yeah. like how a relationship went bad. Like because it's basically he forbids her from flying and he says that she has to stay here and she says that she needs to go and he basically like says like like get the fuck out never come back if no, going- he, it, what does no, he say he, no, she, like, to sleep. number one i have the 1500 word summary yeah. in front of me dan sorry i'm <laughs> recollecting this I'm, i i yield the floor so uh rabbit like rabbit knows that it's gonna happen now right and like Cassie, who is still a kid, kind of is just like asked Rabbit to read her a bedtime story, and Rabbit declined. Says, "You don't need me to read you a bedtime story. You don't need me for anything." And then she just bawls. She just starts <laughs> crying yeah. on this major Jewish mom guilt trip that Rabbit <laughs> just laid down on him. It's a know. brutal scene, as like she's crying by the fire, and Rabbit just like sits in his room, not going to her. Like, like it's fucking brutal. So I mean, it, it ends with like everybody gathering to say goodbye to Cassie, and Rabbit is not there. You know, and Cassie is like, I don't know where Rabbit is, and Pooh, like Pooh and Tigger are trying to comfort her as she leaves for college. Basically, like that's what this is. Like as she she leaves to go away to college. And we find out that the reason why Rabbit is not there is he is in his house looking desperately for that carrot that was planted. Chekhov's carrot, which was in the pot, so that he can give it to her. And and then he, like, when he gets there, Cassie's gone. Like, she's already left, and he drops the, the carrot over the side of the cliff in this moment. And then she comes back. It's like, of course I wouldn't leave without saying goodbye. And then she flies away, and... And then there's a, a sweet moment between Pooh and Piglet later on, talking yeah. about like Rabbit, like caring so much, and you know what love is, and it's very sweet. Yeah, but yeah. And then there, and then the episode ends with Rabbit staring out, waiting for spring, so that Cassie will come back. Which, by the way, Dan, Cassie does come back. Aw, just in case like she's like know. a reoccurring character. Yeah, yeah. Cassie does come back. <laughs> That's cool. It's yeah. a good fucking show. Like it, that, that again. That's all in twenty two fucking twenty two minutes. That level of fucking pathos, <laughs> like Adventure Time. Eat your fucking heart out. Just a lot of fucking time. Just it's really it's efficient storytelling. Yeah, like honestly, like 
I would watch this, but like I want it to be the rabbit show. Like, and now <laughs> as an adult millennial, I identify very strongly with the rabbit. I just want it to be the story of this uh, this neurotic <laughs> gardening <laughs> addict, this, this neurotic, neurotic vegan. Yeah, I, that tracks. This neurotic vegan forced to deal with a parade of dipshits who won't leave his property. Yeah, I sympathize with that. I think that was the plot of the movie Mother. (laughs) So, so yeah. Like, so... Like, yeah, fuck Tigger, man. Fuck Tigger. <laughs> fuck Tigger, that criminally negligent... Tigger should be in jail. Like, I'm gonna say that. I've always kind of had that opinion. I've always... That's, well, good thing now you have a platform to deliver it. Yeah. Like, even as a kid, I was anti-Tigger, which tells you what kind of fucking child I was. Where I was- You were such a lame fucking kid. <laughs> You're a lame fucking adult, but you were the lamest kid. I, I sympathize with Piglet as a kid. But it was always like, listen, every time Tigger shows up, things get fucking out of hand, and Piglet is very distressed. Tigger is a living, breathing, bouncing airsoft gun. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Tigger was Tigger was the friend that bought a butterfly knife to hanging out, and suddenly everything was a lot more intense. God, yeah. So, all right. So, to talk about like why this works, I guess, and how it relates to the Andy Griffith show. Yeah, it's all about the journey of like letting go, which like yeah. the Andy Griffith show kind of establishes a framework for. But it, it goes through the whole journey of like it, it spreads that out into like sort of a hero's journey, like rise and decline, where he does. It sort of does follow the same pattern though of like gradually having that realization come like the thing that happens where andy realizes it barney realizes it opie realizes it but it's just spread out over 22 minutes i like how in in the andy griffith show right it's you mentioned that andy and barney and opie all have to come to the realization so it doesn't matter right that they're adults yeah and in the new adventures of winnie the pooh rabbit is i mean he's an adult rabbit but yeah I don't know what the canon is as far as new adventures go, but he's also still the imagination of a child, right? Like, he's yeah. still a, a figure that came from a child's imagination. What if so, I just disagreed with you vehemently? I was just like, no, Rabbit's real. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, maybe. Again, I don't know what the canon is on this show. Yeah. Like, I, I will say, because I remember distinctly another episode of the new adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Apparently, just this show lodges off in my brain. There is a scene... Where Christopher Robin takes Pooh and Tigger to a grocery store, and Tigger manages to take over the PA system, <laughs> the announcements of the grocery store, and other people can hear him. So, <laughs> well, maybe that was just Christopher Robin having an episode. Potentially, like so, did and, you, and, and, and so a, other people can hear can hear Tigger. So, as a kid, uh, were you distressed by the Calvin and Hobbes is Hobbes real question? Constantly. I had the giant, like, like, like thick compendium of Calvin and Hobbes uh, comics. And there was one thing that was like written by Bill Watterson. And he was like, Hobbes is clearly imaginary. Unless you were a child reading it, in which case, no, he is real. And I was like, whoo! (laughs) Oh, thanks, Bill Watterson. Good to know. Okay, he is real. Awesome. (laughs) You had me scared there for a second. 
<laughs> yeah, but, but, but so what I was saying there is basically like it's another combination there, right? It it doesn't matter if you are an adult human or an adult rabbit or a child human. This feeling is constant and it doesn't get easier. You're going to have to realize it every single time it happens. And I thought that was like I think that's a nice connection. You know, whether or not you're a man, a child, a thin fascist or a rabbit, I think we can all come together in this emotional journey. But only those things. <laughs> only those things. Um, well, well, what if you are a, a Simpson? Yeah. So, what, okay. So the what if Simpson, you're Bart Simpson? So the Simpsons goes the opposite route, which is why this whole thing kind of lined up so fucking cool. Which is the Simpsons basically does the first half of it. Child kills bird. And experiences the consequences of having to take a life. And then they do the second half of the Andy Griffith Show episode. But it's like five minutes and they're just like, fuck it, lizards. Like, <laughs> they just like, they basically do the Andy Griffith Show episode. But then at the end, they just throw off a stink bomb and run away. Yeah. The, the way that The Simpsons always goes is like the first eight minutes of The Simpsons is always a decoy plot anyway, right? Yeah. So... So this is Season 10, Episode 3, originally aired September 27th, 1998, Bart the Mother, written by David X. Cohen, directed by Stephen Dean Moore. And yes, yeah, so that, that is the plot. If you're not familiar with this episode of The Simpsons, it is the one where Bart goes over to Nelson's against his mom's wishes, and Nelson has a BB gun that he won from stealing prize tickets from the local family fun center. And... Bart goes over there to use the BB gun, much like we were talking about earlier. Nelson is absolutely the kid with the airsoft gun. And Nelson pressures Bart to shoot a bird. Yeah. And this is such an interesting, like, balancing act for, I think, the writers of The Simpsons. Because you have to write Bart as a shithead, but mm -hmm. not a psychopath. Right? And this is, like, kind of like... One of the things I never understood about The Simpsons, and I don't think The Simpsons ever really cared about it, is, like, where Bart ranks on the social ladder, like, is he cool with the bullies? Is he not friends with – do they bully him? Do they get together and bully Milhouse, who is also Bart's best friend? I don't know. It's never really clear. But you get the sense, like, Bart wants to be cool with these people. So – but also Bart doesn't want to shoot a bird. It's so. the it's sort of the um, it's like a, a like not a criticism of The Simpsons because fuck it, but like they kind of wanted to have their cake and eat it too with Bart, where they wanted him to be like the cool kid with the attitude in the skateboard, but also they wanted him to be the nerd that gets picked on and he's like the underdog, and like it, so like the whole situation is constantly changing. I think where, they handled it very yeah. well in this episode, right? Bart is you know a rebellious enough kid. To sneak out and act out and go to Nelson's house to do things that he knows he's not supposed to do. But when Nelson ups the ante and says, let's kill that bird, Bart doesn't want to do it. Like, yeah. And the way that – because in order to do this Andy Griffith plot, right, the killing of the bird has to be unintentional. Yeah. So they had to find a way to differentiate Bart from Opie, who is Opie's just shooting wildly or whatever, and they couldn't just do that. So Bart has to make an active choice, right? And there's a good moment where Bart is he has the bird in his sights, and then he 
like jerk like shoots away to the right intentionally trying to miss and he hits the bird anyway because he didn't know this but the bb gun has a, a trick sight yeah like the sight on the bb gun is broken and he was not aware of that and that's also what this episode is about is marge has finally gotten sick of bart's crap and is just like do what you want i don't care abandoning like bart yeah. to the wild essentially as bart takes on new responsibility because he feels bad about what he's done immediately and then he takes care of, of in this case it's two eggs yeah right? it's not baby birds it's two eggs and he has to serve as a mother to those two eggs yeah so opie's so they they escalate the culpability because opie's culpability is just he thought he sh he was shooting at a tree he didn't know there was a bird in the tree he killed a bird bart has to like basically make every single decision that leads to him killing a bird, but then try to, like, chicken out at the last second and then fail to do so. So, like, Bart is, like, Bart has to be as culpable for the death of the bird as possible without making the final decision to kill the bird. Yes. Because, yeah. yeah, it's all about, like, you know, the crime and the road to redemption. Like, and, like, sort of, it's really, like, the... The rising action is basically leading up to the killing of the bird, and then every the falling action is like everything that comes after, which is basically just uh, Marge saying, "I'm done with you." Not yeah. even really like, like, because he says like, "I have done something really bad, and I deserve to be punished." And she's like, "No, this is beyond punishment." I think you don't get a whole lot of Bart and Marge episodes. Yeah. Like, there's not a lot of episodes that focus around Bart and Marge's relationship. There's more, I think, that focus around Homer and Lisa's. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of nice, right? Like, number one, like, I, I always kind of like it when Marge gets a, gets some kind of spotlight because she's always kind of like the unsung yeah. hero, uh, tragic hero of The Simpsons. And this one's between the two of them. And there's, there's a good moment. So after Bart raises the kit, the, the eggs, uh, Marge, after like washing her hands of it, has this good moment where she looks at whatever Bart is doing up in the treehouse and says, and was like, I wonder what he's doing in there. I don't know, and I don't want to know, and I'm going to find out. And it's such a good <laughs> mom moment. It's just yeah. pure, like, distilled mom. And she discovers what's going on right as the eggs are about to hatch. And then they have kind of a bonding moment. And when the eggs do hatch, they're not birds. They are Bolivian tree lizards who have, like, placed their eggs inside, like, cuckoo style, inside of a bird's nest. Um, yeah. They're an in, they're a parasitic invasive species. Yeah. Like, the, what, did you, when you were a kid, did you have rumors of the snakehead fish? Yeah. Uh, no, I yeah. don't think there were rumors. Like, snakehead fish are fucking real. Are they fucking real? Because yeah, they sounded insane when I... They're real. The uh, The wildlife reserve in South Philly has, like, fishing days where they'll give you money how many of those fish you catch. Are you, can they actually... Because the rumor I had when I was uh, as a kid, where later I was like, that there's no way that was fucking real, is that they can get up and walk from body of water to body of water. Oh, well, that's not true. But what they yeah. can do is fucking hide inside of boats, basically, oh. attach themselves to boats. God damn. Yeah, so I think that was, like, the basis for this. It definitely had, like, lantern butterfly vibes. Or not, sorry, lantern but lanternfly vibes. 
I'm gonna look up a fucking snakehead fish. I yeah, kinda... I've, I've I've got them right here now. Yeah, I've got the Wikipedia in front of me. Yeah, they yeah. just they just look like shitty fish. Oh wait, no, they got those fucking teeth. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. It's, speaking of the spotted lanternfly, yeah. So they so Bart takes these two lizards to the bird watching society led by Principal Skinner because they're arguing over what kind of bird it is, and Lisa's the only one that says it's not a bird, obviously. <laughs> Uh, Pr- Principal Skinner says, all right, well, these are invasive species. I'm going to kill them gruesomely. Legally, they have to be killed as quickly and gruesomely as possible is yeah. the line he gets, which is kind of funny. And then there's a good moment, right, where Bart runs off with them and, he, and like, he tells his mom, he tells Marge, listen, I, I, I know everyone thinks that these are monsters, but I raised them and I love them. I know that's hard to understand. And Marge goes... It's not that hard to understand. Yeah. And like and tells him to run and she covers for him. Which is good. It's nice and sweet. Side note, this and the show knows it because it calls attention to it. It's slightly undercut by how shitty she treats Nelson for this entire episode. Yeah. Like she does call Nelson a monster and does say that like Nelson is a sad, lonely child and therefore he needs to be shut off from society <laughs> and shunned. Well, there is the episode where she basically adopts Nelson. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Like, but like, it, it definitely they make an extra point. I think this is like one of because the degree to which Nelson is a developed character varies wildly depending on like where you are in the continuity. Sometimes, and this is one of the ones where he is like the realest portrayal of the, like. The the troubled yeah. kid because they do show that basically his mom doesn't fucking care. He like just like cookies like is completely left to fend for himself. At one point in time, he's frying a carrot by himself he- while humming the Simpsons theme song. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, basically it just goes. And then the uh, the lizards escape. They decimate the pigeon population. Yeah, there's a there's a fun bit of. Uh- that Lisa has about like pointing out that Bart was really sad when he killed one bird, but now he's accidentally killed 10,000. Yeah. And Bart's like, huh? Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. Just be like, that is weird. And then leaves. <laughs> it it does have one of my favorite Simpsons lines about the gorilla. <laughs> about. They do like an old lady who swallowed the fly thing, but with, I'm like, gonna, I'm going to cut that. Cause like two guys reciting Simpsons is, is unlistenable. The- this is the fucking challenge of talking about The Simpsons in terms of, like, just talking about it. Because you have the powerful instinct to just quote Simpsons lines. Like, <laughs> it is like, I have been resisting just saying verbatim Simpsons quotes this entire time with every fiber of my being. Like, it's impossible. And, like, even doing a critical analysis of The Simpsons feels weird because it it definitely feels like a thing that you almost shouldn't talk about in ways other than just going like i must return to my home planet poochie died on the way to his home planet like it feels like the only way you should really use the simpsons anymore is to do pictures of people talking underneath politicians being shitheads on twitter like it it, that really feels (laughs) like the appropriate use but like it's definitely having seen this episode of the Andy Griffith show makes this episode of the Simpsons way better yeah. because they do 
a much better version of the Andy Griffith Show episode, and then at the end just go completely fucking berserk and yeah, end I, I, with the joke about gorillas freezing to death. Yeah, it is definitely the best Andy Griffith Show episode, and like maybe a top fifty Simpsons episode. It so is, do the math of that, what you will. Yeah, so I think that's. Did we put together anything coherent from that? Do you think we're rusty? I don't know. I, I feel like we we drew kind of several points. You know yeah. what we forgot to do? Ratings. Yes. Okay. Andy Griffith Show episode it's ten and a zero. Like right. 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 No. For for sure. For sure. If this is your first time listening to the show, I'm sorry. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, we rate these episodes. On the Andy meter, which is how good this episode is, and the Barney meter, which is like how fucked up did this, how badly did this episode hurt a generation? And yeah, Dan is correct. It is 10 and possibly a negative Barney meter. I think generally, like, this episode would have had positive ramifications. If, if this anything. is the Winnie the Pooh episode has the score of two crying adult men. So, (laughs) like, I think. That's like the ranking it gets. And the Simpsons episode is, it is an episode of the Simpsons. It's, yeah, yeah. It it gets one episode of the Simpsons, which also translates to three King of the Hills or 47 South Parks. I, I like that conversion the, rate. Yeah, I think that, fe- I, I went completely off the cuff with that, but that feels, that feels right. right. It feels right. Yeah. And that's basically it. Not bad for our first time back in a while. So thanks once again for tuning in. It's it's nice to be back, I guess. <laughs> Relatively. Hello, as Dr. always, my you can friend. <laughs> as always, you can get to us on the internet. On the inter- on Twitter, we are at breakmayberry, facebook.com slash breakingmayberry, twitter.com slash breakmayberry, Instagram we're breakingmayberry. You know what? That's my goal for this year is to actually use Instagram to promote our show. Do you want to just post pictures of my dog? Sure. Yeah. We have dogs and cats. They're adorable. Yeah. Let's just Uh, put pictures of our pets on the Instagram. That's like about as good of a usage as we're going to get from it, right? On the internet online, I am Schneid Remarks. That's S-C-H-N-E-I-D Remarks. I'm at the Luds, two Ds. If you want to support us with your money dollars, we are patreon.com slash breakingmayberry. Otherwise, anything you do, a rating, a review, sharing it with your friends, anything that helps us get through those algorithms and get into other people's earbuds, always good, always appreciated. Thanks for sticking with us. We're going through season four together. Looking forward to it. We'll see you all down at the fishing hole. Bum bum bum